I think human beings have more agency than they think they have to create worlds. And it comes from a John Shorter quote that, you know, we, we think the world is really made for us to occupy. And actually, the world emerges with us as we go along. It's a fundamentally profound idea, but, uh, you know, I think it's when you realize that, you just liberate it in so many ways. I've always seen myself as a lifelong student, and I'm at my happiest when learning new concepts and principles I can apply in my life. This year, I started a new learning journey through the University of Cape Town's Graduate Business School. I was accepted into their globally top 50 ranked executive MBA. The reason I chose the top ranked EMBA in Africa was because through studying the curriculum, it just looked different to any other business degree out there. This degree doesn't focus on business functions like a typical MBA brings together management practice, systems thinking, and understanding complexity, all while studying reflective practice and practicing mindfulness. The course recognizes that we can all get the technical stuff, but also need to try and understand each other as human beings and use our conversations wisely to drive action. I'd like to share my learning journey through speaking to some of the amazing human beings I will no doubt encounter in the next couple of years as part of doing this degree. Associate Professor Kashik Shucharan is the EMBA program director. He has designed this program in such a way as to nurture and create executives who are able in their actions and their being to lead authentically, taking into consideration the context within which they need to operate. For the past 10 years, he has studied the lived practice of strategy and leadership from the point of view of executives. When a mentor and dear friend recommended that I do this degree, I contacted Kashik and asked him to convince me why I should sign up for this degree. He took the time and I quickly recognized that this was something different and exactly the type of learning journey I was looking for at this stage in my life. In this episode, we talk about Kashik's journey, some of the major transformations he has seen in people and what the burning questions are that keep him excited every day. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Good morning, Kashik. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you, Pietro. And thanks for the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks for making your time available on this Saturday. Um, so I always like to start when I'm speaking to somebody around your journey and how you ended up right here, right now, in this place, being able to speak to me about this, this specific topic. So I'll start with your story. And the first thing I'd like to ask you is where were you born and where did you grow up? Good. That's a good question. To start with, Pietro, I grew up in a little town called Peter Maritzburg, which is about a 150 kilometers outside of Durban. And it was a low income, um, you know, working class neighborhood. So I spent all of my years of growth there, um, attending, you know, a public schooling system. I actually grew up pretty close to that. Really? Yes. Um, I grew up in Westville. That would be really a surprise, but do tell me. 
I grew up in Westville. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. So I went to school there. Um, so we actually probably didn't live that far from each other. Not very far. No, we didn't actually. <laughs> so I grew up in this poor working class neighborhood, you know. What was school like where you grew up? It was, um, you know, we were like ordinary kids. We played in the dirt and we, you know, procrastinated about homework and spent far too much time probably on the streets and so it was a it was a lively fun childhood we played lots of games outdoors not as much computer games or yeah i guess the same for us as well and then after you finished school what happened next you know when i finished school growing up in a poor working class neighborhood there was there wasn't any money to go to university so i started work immediately and I started work as a production control clerk, you know, somebody who tries to capture production records and machine logs and, and information out of a production plant. That was my first job. And whilst doing my first job, I started um, studying towards a diploma data metrics, which was uh, a computer programming qualification at the time. And my first job was a combination of this clerical activity and trying to uh, understand and learn about how to program the computers I was working in. And then what happened? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, my first job exposed me to uh, a work environment. And with that, I became more ambitious in terms of trying to do complex technical things. So I continued studying. I then did a BSc through UNISA in software engineering. I did a, one with three majors, actually, with operations research and then one with statistics. And I was fascinated by plant optimization and the kind of work industrial engineers um, really get trained to do. So I had this dual career, you know, studying in the evenings and working during the day and working as a analyst programmer, a process analyst. So I had this dual part through life, learning and then trying to practice what I learned during the day. And uh, I did that for probably 10 years. So I, um, you know, I was the typical corporate athlete trying to be as productive and ambitious and until you, um, until you fail. And I think, um, uh, you know, the, the first 10 years was about becoming technically proficient and excellent. And the next half a decade was about uh, learning how to fail and learning how to transcend the failure and the politics. And then it brought me to the limits of technical knowledge, which was, you know, a period in which I earned my, my honors in computer science and then a master's in systems thinking. And then starting to understand the limits of technical knowledge and thinking you can automate human beings. Okay. Um, so you wanted to get to a place where you could automate human beings. So you were thinking about the whole thing where people interact with systems or, or human beings interact with systems. So what I'm interested in knowing is at what point did you decide that you didn't want, you didn't want to work in this manufacturing systems environment anymore, but actually research it and understand it? That's, a, that's an interesting question to segue with. So it was the, you know, understanding politics and understanding how, um, 
you know, I was young, much younger then. So I was, I was intrigued by the lived experience uh, of working in these environments. I was also intrigued that, um, you know, um, human beings do not behave as uh, according to the expectations we have about them. And is there a different way to understand human beings so that you could, you know, you could design things that take the best of a human performance and complement that human performance with technology or ways in which you can enhance it. Mm. And then I joined UCT in 2006. So after a 15-year uh, industrial experience, I registered for a PhD. And uh, I, for three years, read all the existential philosophers, Martin Heidegger, you know, really, uh, on the one hand, what's the purpose of a human life? And on the other hand, um, how do you deal competently with the lived experience of being human? And uh, I was fascinated to find out at the end of it all that, um, you know, that um, this opened up a whole new world for me, a whole new world of uh, scholarship that I could tried to untangle and revitalize some of the pedagogy for project management, how to be trained business analysts. And that period was an intense learning period. And it was a period of me um, understanding complexity, but from a philosophical point of view. And uh, I had then made connection with the dean of the business school at the time, Walter Bates. And Walter Bates and I shared thoughts about complexity from different points of view. And um, and then I was pushed into a whole bigger world of um, executive MBA scholarship and executive scholarship. And that was a world I realized I was truly most interested in working with and mastering. So it was about, you know, um, problems of will are problems that we seldom think about, but Problems of will have fascinated philosophers for for centuries, and mostly the pragmatist philosophers. So Walter Bates and I had a really good relationship, and I was uh, head of department of uh, a department in commerce, and he was the dean of the business school at the time. And he kind of poached me, which is not good in academic politics. So he poached me to come and run the executive MBA, and I had abandoned the faculty of commerce at the time, and. Um, I haven't looked back. I mean, I, I'm still learning so much and inquiring. Yeah. I mean, the world that I work in at the moment is very business improvement, industrial engineering type based. It's all that sort of hard data type of things. I'm trying to understand how to improve projects, how to improve systems, how to do all that sort of thing. And what I've realized probably over the last two or three years, is that you can't do that in isolation. You can't actually try and improve some... If, there's a, if there are any humans involved in the whole process, there's no way you can automate beyond a place. If, if a human has to have an intervention somewhere, you have to take the humans into consideration as well. And I think that's what's so interesting for me about this specific learning journey on the EMBA is that it's a combination of understanding the systems as well as understanding the humans and how they interact within the system and how they're going to possibly react to specific interventions, I guess. So what's really interesting to me, though, or what I'd like to try and sort of think about is you were in this very, very um, 
systems or automated or operations type environment, at some point when this is not, you know, I can't just be looking at the systems and the in, and operations and the and the data and the statistics and the analysis. I have to um, actually start thinking about how do I as a human being, interact within the system. So I'm sort of interested, when did you make that leap between the sort of industrial world and then going into, now I'm going to actually go into the um, academic world? Um, so sort of what triggered you to go, I'm going to do this now? Yeah, interesting question. So it was about 2003 or 2004. I was in a, a large-scale expansion project and uh, we were implementing um, an enterprise resource planning system, and it was the wrong decision. But we'd spent millions trying to do it. And uh, we had to get to a point of accepting we'd made a mistake and uh, deciding we had to build something different. So in that period, um, I understood then that um, you can only get organized, coherent action going if you understand how to design purpose in systems and in people. And uh, it was a humbling journey when you, when you start to understand that the, um, you know, you could design the best uh, engineering systems. If they don't resonate with the purposes people have, they're just mm. not going to see it and they're just not going to use it. Then I, I realized I knew so little about people. I was, you know, I was so skilled in everything else. And uh, I also realized that the practice of strategy, the practice of um, leadership was not taking into consideration enough of the lived reality of uh, every moment of being in these situations. Mm. And then I decided a PhD would work. Okay. And so that was sort of your learning journey into trying something different. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of in the same journey at the moment because I've sort of got to a certain point in my career and then went, I need to discover, at the last interview I had with somebody who interviewed me for a position, they said to me, I'd worked so hard to get to that point. And it was sort of the last hurdle for me to get into, into this current job that I'm in at the moment. And the person who interviewed me said to me, what are you going to do next? Okay, now you're here. What are you going to do next? And I was like, I hadn't even thought about it because it was such hard work to get just to that point and into that interview and into having a conversation with that person. And I'm using this degree as a way to discover what next. So what next? What am I going to be doing? How am I going to be spending my time for the next couple of years? And I guess that's at some point in your life, you have to get to a point where you go, what's the most valuable, valuable way for me to spend my time? So I've got... I've got all of this technical knowledge in my head. There's a whole bunch of things I could do, you know, but what, what would I personally like to be spending my time on for the limited amount of time that I have left on this planet? What do I want to be thinking about? What do I want to be doing? What do I want to be spending my time on? And for me, that's just, that sort of pivot point that you're talking about where you get to a certain point and you go, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I want to be spending my time on something different. And did the PhD unlock that for you, for what you actually wanted to be spending your time on? It opened up a door, Petro. But I think the, the thing that unlocked it for me was the um, discovering the state of management scholarship. You know, like I said, in 2005, I realized I had this desire to know. And then I thought the knowledge is there. I merely have to acquire it. 
And I spent uh, five years earning this PhD and then realized, well, the things I want to be involved in, like strategy and leadership, that scholarship was was just identified as having to be remade. So I'm now participating in that process of remaking that scholarship. But it's um, the love for being in that world and wanting to practice in that world, but at the same time creating the knowledge to to function optimally and, and with skill in that world. The PhD didn't unlock it. It showed me the it unlocked it, but the discovery is just ongoing. Mm. And I think you, you'll find the same with your journey on the executive MBA is um, we nudge you with each course to expand your structure of interpretation. And you will see as we go along that uh, we leave you at a point in the end where you and I and all the other facilitators see the same world. And we participate as colleagues in a way, making up the knowledge for the next practice. I'm very excited for that journey because I remember probably the very first time we spoke to each other towards the end of last year and then you reinforced it with the very first message to our group at the beginning of the year was that we might not understand you 100% now, but you'll teach us the language so we can understand each other towards the end of the course. So I'm looking forward to that yeah. point where it all just clicks and we all understand each other and we're all speaking the same language. So that's coming and it's something to look forward to. I guess through your, um, you've been the director for this program for a couple of years now. And I guess you must have seen some amazing transformations of people coming into the program and then leaving as different people. Do you have any examples of that? There's a lot of examples of that. And uh, you know, I've been the director now for over eight years, I think, thereabouts. So the one person, most recent example, is a colleague called Simon Alston. He's the CEO of Wellness Warehouse. He came onto the program as a asset manager, really uh, competent technically, engineering financial growth. And Simon and I had um, a deep discussion about what he'd like to do. And he says, you know, he's tired of engineering value. He wants to create value. But he doesn't know quite whether that's the world he'd like, but he'd like to discover how to do it and then if he'd like that world. And uh, Simon Alston in his position paper four and position papers three, whilst being an investor in Wellness Warehouse, produced a strategy and a business model to take it into a period of sustained growth. And it was such a good piece of thinking that then they hired him to be the CEO. So he had this dual responsibility of having the investor. But Simon had discovered a joy of running a business that I had seen him um, grow energy with enthusiasm and he was working harder but having probably twice as much fun but at the same time creating uh, value for people all around him you know he was in a productive part of the economy if you want to call it that so that's one story and, mm. and i think it's important because i think the executive mba shifted his will and disclose a whole new world for him. And, you know, the the possibilities are just limitless of what he's going to do next. Mm. What, I, what I'm really enjoying about it is that it's not just technical. There's so much more to it. It's not just technical understanding systems and then, you know, looking at your soft systems methodology and viable systems modeling and all the technical things you guys are teaching us. It's also at the same time 
changing the way in which we think about the world because we get an opportunity to reflect and look back at what we've learned. And we also get an opportunity to practice a lot of the being a human being type things with each other in our groups. So we, we've created a little safe space within our groups and we say this is where we have to practice these things. If we can't practice them here, where else are we going to practice them? And I think just being able to have that opportunity to practice being a human being with inside a system and trying to understand all the concepts, I think that's not many people get that opportunity to, to have a safe space to practice things like that. Another thing is, you know, I've got a couple of um, mentees in my life. I'm, I like mentoring. So I like to um, take people at the beginning of their career. And I think I've got enough. I'm in a good space now where I think I can provide some insights into, you know, if you've got want a career as a woman, particularly in mining, these are the sort of things that you can do to build yourself up. And there's sort of always, I mean, the role of a mentor is to have conversations with your mentee to light a spark or let them solve their own problems. And for me, when they get to that point where it's sort of a spark in their eyes and they understand something and they've solved their own problem in the session, that's sort of, I love that. That's, that's the, yeah. I, I live for moments like that. And I think you must have so many of those moments where you see these light coming out in people's eyes and all of a sudden they understand something or they've learned a language. It must be amazing to work in, a, in an environment where you can see that on a daily basis almost. I mean, you've just touched on the true joys of doing what we do, you know. It is energizing to see that. And, you know, another colleague is Patizia Malinga, who's a CEO of uh, Squidnet. And, um, you know, he invented the term called Embanese to give a phrase for all the new language you acquire. But he as well, you know, he was a computer scientist, I think, who was working for Life Health. And then he got to the end of creating value as a technical professional. And he wanted to be involved in creating value at a, at a business model level or a strategy level or new enterprise level. In our consensus, that's also your, in your next growth possibilities. And, uh, it's just fascinating for, for us to see how that happens quite naturally as the students go along. Yeah. I mean, there must be so many moments as you go through this and get to meet all these different people that must make you really proud of what you do. Has the work that you do transformed you? Oh, absolutely, Petra. That's my first level of empirical evidence. <laughs> everything <laughs> I try to, everything I try to tell students in class, I've obviously tried and, and contemplated in my personal life. And something that's unique about me is I've been a scholar and a practitioner all my life. And uh, I've realized that for positive or negative has shaped and made me a different kind of scholar. So a lot of the things that I build as theoretical concepts or th frameworks, I first have to validate in, in my own personal experience of it. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think you asked me at some point, well, I might have said it at some point that if I could have it, my dream job would be to be a, a student all the time. Okay. So do not have to do anything else. But at the same time, whenever I'm learning something new, I want to know exactly how I'm going to apply this. So what, how has this got any application of what I'm currently doing at the moment? Because, and it's difficult for me to learn too many things at once because I want to always take the stuff and apply it. So it's like a very, very applicable way of doing things. If I'm learning a specific way of doing change management or I'm learning a specific way of doing um, viable systems modeling or I just immediately want to take that knowledge and go and apply it 
in the work that I'm currently doing. So it's quite, yeah, it can be quite jarring having all of these ideas floating around in your head and trying to filter out which ones are relevant right now and which ones not. But it's still good to have this whole repertoire of things that you've got that you could potentially use on issues. And yeah, so if I could be a lifelong student, I, I'd do that. Well, I think you're going to become one, Petro, just as a matter of course. <laughs> I think I've been one all my life. I've been learning my entire life. So I wanted to ask you, is there any, are there any other transformations you'd like to highlight from past students or present students? I think the, there was another student, Alex Byrne, very successful um, asset manager or investor. And um, Alex had made a, a lot of money very early in his life and was really quite wealthy. And, you know, Alex had a, a kind of disposition, and I'm not shy to say this publicly because he'll be the first to admit, he was very um, confrontational, argumentative. You know, he was like the typical uh, high testosterone colleague in the class. You know. And Alex slowly unwound himself and discovered a new way of being that made him more fragile, but opened him up to such a different world. And in his final research project, he read Aristotle, and he uh, was thinking about how to live a good life. Aristotle and Alex Byrne in his class was the most transformed student, and he's probably one of the candidate examples of somebody who's changed 360 degrees in the space of two years. No, oh, that's always amazing. And what I do find frustrating sometimes is if you are on a, a lifelong journey of trying to find out what type of person you want to be, and you're giving it a lot of thoughts as to what is the type of person I'd like to be and where do I want to be going and, and that sort of thing. And you're on this journey and you're learning all these new skills. You're learning um, how to have nonviolent communication and you're learning how to have conversations for action and all those sort of things. You can sometimes get quite impatient with others who aren't on the same journey as you. Okay, so I've learned these skills. I know how to use them. I know how to apply these things. And you, you sort of try and have full conversations. You have to be very patient, I guess, with people who aren't on the same path or the same learning or haven't reached a certain stage of trying to understand you yet. So it sometimes feels like your learning is like very... I guess one-sided, you're the one that's doing the changing all the time and you're yeah. adapting to other people the whole time um, or trying to get them to adapt to you. So it's just a thought that I'm putting out there because it's if you're trying to interact with people who aren't on that same journey, it, it can be quite jarring for the people around you. Yeah. yeah. No, it can be. And in a leadership position, I think that that is uh, the most profound set of learnings you can you know, I think finally all of you will become more conscious of your own leadership practice and, and apply more agency and focus on that a lot more. And uh, I think you, you do realize in the leadership philosophy we encourage that you evolve your own character and the character of others in your personal interaction. And I think it helps to remember that when you... Uh, and it doesn't mean you have to be lenient and with people who are generally laggards and don't carry their weight, but I think sometimes just people just learn at different paces. Yeah, that's 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 for sure. So, what are you working on right now? So, what what is what so, is keeping your brain occupied at the moment? <laughs> so, I'm busy at the moment. I'm trying to do two things: is to is to 
re not I wouldn't say redevelop, but to make more explicit and coherent the leadership development scholarship on the executive MBA. And it's the first year we've consciously tried it out uh, in course five. And at the same time, it's also changing the research project so people could inquire into their leadership practice. There's a colleague of mine, Joe Raylan, and myself who have been busy with this. So the inventing the leadership scholarship has been the most pressing issue I've been focused on, dedicating a lot of my time, but it's very exciting at the same time. Mm. So if you look at your calendar for tomorrow or the week coming up, and you sort of look at all the things that you're going to be doing for the next couple, which are the days or which are the sort of events in your calendar which make you go, yes, you jump out of bed and that's the day that you're really excited to have, um, that, you know, you know what I mean? You know, that, that yeah. I mean, every day can be nice and you can be doing nice stuff, but there's certain things that just make you go, yes, today we're doing this. And that makes me really, really excited. Yeah. Which days are those? Well, I mean, typically it's the days when I'm reading and writing. I normally try to keep two days aside for that. It hasn't really uh, been possible all the time in this shutdown period. But uh, the days I have my calendar blanked out and the days in which I'm reading and writing. Yeah, I'm also very grateful of those days, you know, when I can actually just spend time with my books and my papers and just learning new things. You don't often get to do that, especially in sort of, it, it feels to me at the moment as if, there's a lot of demand on, on our time in the, in the sort of period that we are right now. But it's okay. I've been trying, I guess, for the last couple of years to find some sort of balance, you know, some sort of flow in which I can do both. You can do the sort of learning while you can do the um, do well at work. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about, about the sort of lived-in experiences. So to be conscious of what you're learning in the time that you're busy learning it on the day and and still have you said earlier have fun with it so how do I find a balance where I can learn stuff be effective at work and still have fun at the same time I've been trying to find that flow and some days I get it right and sometimes I don't get it right but that's sort of the intent for each day is to somehow get some sort of balance and flow where I get time to do some studying and some exercise and some work, spend time with family, you know, get everything done in one day. And I'm actually amazed at, and on the learning journey, how much time our lecturers spend with us or how available they are for us to bounce stuff off them if we need any, any input. So um, that's, I've been really appreciative of that as well. So I guess what I'm talking about is sort of the, how do you live every day and I think that's sort of this, this whole concept of everydayness that you wrote about, and that's one paper you took us through in course one, of being aware of what you're learning in the day and what you do know and what you don't know and how that's going to influence what's coming and your day as a person. Yeah. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but yeah. I mean, that's a, <laughs> I'll tell you how I see it. The struggle with all of us, Petra, I think the... The struggle in you in particular is similar to most, um, I would say, people who want to produce impact in their lives and better human performances. We drive ourselves really hard. And I think the, the idea is to reframe what we consider as a day or reframe the idea of uh, what we consider 
And the everydayness in particular is trying to reframe the concept of momentary existence in the world. And I think when you reframe that, then I think you, you're not searching for full days. You're searching for conscious effort on little things and seeing them accumulate. So you, you do become productive, I'd say. I, I would say that you become more conscious, more productive, but you also start to understand how you can trick yourself into better performances. Because, you know, it's like a simple example would be if you put down, I need to spend 12 hours tomorrow reading VSM. You're going to be utterly disappointed <laughs> that you're never going to get there. On the one hand, it's not practical. But if you took a little bit of time and said, I want to read about, um, if you take one concept, variety. I want to understand variety tomorrow. You could understand variety from a 20 minutes reading effort. Then you realize I've got a whole day free now. What else can I do? So it's about how specifically do you define what you want to do so that the motivation when you've achieved it is much higher and you don't end up with disappointments about poor performance when there was no real chance you'll get there in any case. Yeah, it's a real challenge not to put demands on yourself that are um, achievable, but really a lot of effort. And you still want to be able to do other stuff as well. You know, for me, it's really important that balance. I can spend the whole day, 12 days, reading about VSM. I can read all the papers, do all that sort of thing. But I'm, it's really important for me to also do other things. I don't want any one components of my life to rule my life. My work is not my life. My studying is not my life. Um, the family I'm currently in is not my life. It's all components, and I want to enjoy all of them. And um, how do I get that right? How do I get that balance right? So that's what I'm sort of striving for at the moment. I also need time to reflect, and I need time to go paragliding and do things like that. You know, So it's, I think the group of people that we're in um, or the people who are in this course, uh, we are in a spot in our career where we have to focus a lot on our career. So for me, I'm trying to get away from the fact that my career is me. It's not, you know, so there's other parts of me as well. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a very evolved thought. I mean, it's, uh, and I think the earlier you learn that, the better for you. Because the artistry and, the, you know, the creative achievement is that much easier to get to. If you realize you're not chasing these arbitrary, it's the same with me, Petra. I've given up on being a typical scholar. That word doesn't exist, you know. For me, it's, I've always done things my way and I'll continue doing them my way. If they get recognized, they get recognized, but I'm not chasing an mm. achievement as such. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's quite important that I find something that's, you said earlier, um, what is the purpose of a system? What's the purpose of a person? How do you bring those things together? It's important for me to find a way to be that is aligned with who I am and my values. That's not being dictated by other people or other, or the work that's been expected from me or that sort of thing. It's sort of give me an objective and I'll find a way to achieve that objective through a way that aligns with my values. Um, so that's sort of what I'm trying to achieve. But it takes a lot of thoughts and reflections to do it that way. Yeah. No, you're right. You know, that very puzzle you intrigued by, Petra, I must tell you that Aristotle was intrigued with that for all of his life. You know, the purpose of a good life and how does one lead a good life. And, um, and you know, you guys will discover Aristotle because we talk about him. 
because you know I'm so glad that you are already free framed and sensitive to reframing because I think as soon as you start to understand that you are evolving your character by the by practicing your character every day and the time spent on understanding who you are and why you are and becoming more untangled from all of the socialization and the you know the images you've had about yourself in particular roles the better for you it just mm. releases you yeah, that's for sure in your line of work you know so we're having a podcast conversation here if i could pick up the phone um and set up a podcast for you with somebody in the next week who you'd really like to have a conversation with who would that person be so I can make it happen. I don't know if I can, but, you know, who would you like to really have a conversation with? Yes. Well, you could try. I mean, it was, the scholar I draw on most of all is a guy called Harry Soukas. He's a Greek management scholar. You could call him a philosopher as well. His work has profoundly influenced my thinking and my own scholarship. You know, if you look at, uh, so he's the guy for sure. It would have been Roger Martin, but Roger Martin's a close friend of mine now. You know, years ago, he was the guy I read with quite precision. But at the moment, I'm studying the works of Harry Sukas. And are there any books that you have there behind you in your um, bookshelf which you'd recommend anybody to read? Tell them, if they said to you, you know, if there's like a couple of books and you said, these are the things you have to absolutely read in your life, which, which books would you, would you give them? So the one that they will often prescribe is the book on joy by the Dalai Lama and um, Desmond Tutu. It, the, the language is simple, but the lessons are just profound. I've used it many times to read myself uh, into a better mood. That would be one book for sure. And the other one, which is an acquired taste, but nevertheless very transformative, is uh, the book by Robert Shear and Robin Holt on strategy as indirect action. And, uh, you know, it's a book we, strategy as indirect action. And what's that about? That book is about thoughts on strategy that reframe it from the way it's currently positioned. You know, that strategy is a, quite a directed process to take an organization from situation A to situation B. And it reframes that, but using a lot of the philosophy, but also very good case studies from modern business. Okay, I'm going to have to go and look for that now so I can read it. You'll get a chance to read it in course three. <laughs> oh, you're going to give it to us anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, no, that's good. Yeah. What excites you about the future? I think we're going to recreate the construct of the organization and we're going to recreate the construct of economy. We're probably going to bring into being what we call a circular economy or circular economy ideas. And we're going to recreate organization to unbounded organizing. And you know, those are the two interesting pieces of work that I think uh, are begging for scaling and growing and evolution. So I'm busy with some research at the moment on those two concepts. Tell me a little bit more about that. What are you thinking about it so far? Yeah. So there's a the circular economy is about how do we, how do we bring human beings and their direct labor and value that as a process by which these human beings acquire human development. You know, we often think about economic development, then you might get social development, then you might get human development. But this circular economy thinking is rephrased and says, you first get human development, 
then you get social development, then you might or might not get economic development in the way we're thinking about it. And it's done through the, you know, there's a little farm in the Northern Cape in Priska that I'm working with the farm. There was a farmer and his wife uh, who have changed the farm into an organic farming enterprise. But together with that, they've created all kinds of circular economy principles in the downstream industries. And, uh, and we're just thinking about how to scale that, you know. And so the, the scaling of it is to value human labor, but also the human development that goes through with the human labor. So it's probably a mouthful now, but that's really what I'm experimenting with. And what are you hoping to achieve or prove with this? So I'm hoping we can prove that circular economies can be planned by being more deliberate about them and we can scale them. So I'm hoping that would be some outcomes we can try and test out to change the climate question, but also to change the good nutritious food and respecting the the biosphere a lot more. Okay. That, well, that's interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing where you get with that. Cool. Great stuff. So if there's one thing people should know that you would want to teach them, and it's not necessarily through the EMBA, but through the work that you're currently doing, if there's one thing or one message you could put out there into the universe, um, what, what would that be? I think human beings have more agency than they think they have to create worlds. And it comes from a John Schotter quote that, you know, we, we think the world is ready made for us to occupy. And actually, the world emerges with us as we go along. It's a fundamentally profound idea, but, uh, you know, I think it's when you realize that you're just liberated in so many ways. Yeah, I love that concept. It is, I've been sort of starting to read Flores as part of our, as our, of course, too. And I think one of the things that he says is that through our conversations, we create the world in which we live. So that's that sort of same concept where through conversation, we create the world that we want to be in or we want to inhabit. I like that a lot. And I think I'd like to use that concept going forward in how I interact with people. Oh, great. That's wonderful to hear, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time and for this conversation. It's been awesome to be able to talk about things. And yeah. You're most welcome, Petra. I think you're a lifelong student and it's always good to spend time with lifelong students. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unchange. This podcast is recorded and produced by Solid Gold Podcasts. For more info on UCT's Executive MBA, just Google the top-ranked MBA in Africa or go to their website.